we really started thinking about what do we want to explore on Titan. We want to explore these interesting organic grains and how they're how they're made. And in fact, of course, uh, organic stuff is what you and I are made of. That's what life is made of. It's made of carbon-based molecules. And so when we're looking at Titan, we're looking at the most exciting carbon chemistry anywhere but Earth. Meet Jason Barnes, an associate professor at the University of Idaho. Jason is a founding member of an international team of scientists that has spent years designing a robotic quadcopter that can land on Titan, Saturn's largest moon. This drone-like rotorcraft, which is affectionately named Dragonfly, is intended to fly from sampling site to sampling site, studying the moon's atmosphere and surface. In the long run, Dragonfly should help scientists answer questions about how life started on Earth. Welcome, everyone, to the Vandal Theory. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research from the University of Idaho. Throughout the second season of the podcast, we're going to meet U of I researchers and learn about the questions they're trying to answer, the problems they want to solve, and what intrigues them about their research. Jason sat down with me to talk more about how Dragonfly came to be. Hey, Jason. Thanks for coming in today. Sure thing. Can you introduce yourself real quick for everyone? Sure. I'm an associate professor of physics here at the University of Idaho, uh, and I'm a a planetary scientist. So I study mostly planets in our solar system and uh, around other stars. Cool. Thanks. You guys, Team Dragonfly, had a really good day back in June. Can you tell us what kind of news you were waiting for? You know, NASA flies a lot of different missions, uh, both in the solar system and with telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope and that sort of thing. And some fraction of their missions that they fly aren't ones that they themselves devised, but rather are ones that they put out for competition. And so people are able to propose their own ideas, but those those ideas then get evaluated. Um, and in the end, NASA can select one of you know those ideas that have been solicited um, in order to fund at a very high level um, that would allow them to fly into space and actually um, do the science uh, that they propose to do. And these are really competitive. These are essentially the most sought after uh, you know, grants in my field and uh, among the largest competed scientific grants anywhere. So what is one that's won before that people might recognize? Um, the images you might have seen of Pluto in 2015, um, that mission, uh, New Horizons, was the first of this competed line of uh, medium class missions that we had applied to. Um, and there have been uh, two others since then uh, that are just sort of getting to their destinations now, Juno around Jupiter and uh, OSIRIS-REx, which is going to take a sample of an asteroid and bring it back. And we are uh, we were competing in the fourth round of competition for this particular class of mission. Okay, so when did you start, uh, you know, putting this plan together? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, when Cassini arrived at Saturn in 2004, we started making discoveries about Titan, and we started, um, you know, Titan at that point was terra incognita, okay? It was, we really did not know anything about what was going on down in the surface. And the reason is uh, its atmosphere is so thick and full of haze that you can't see through it. And so when Voyager flew by in 1980, it took a picture of nothing, uh, the atmosphere, and it couldn't get down to the surface. So once we started seeing the surface from Cassini, where we saw lakes and seas and channels and mountains and uh, impact craters and 
sand seas and 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 dunes uh we we started formulating ideas of what to do next and so i was at a talk where a friend of mine an older colleague uh suggested that we need to find a way to achieve mobility on titan the same way we did with rovers on mars and this was in 2006 and people laughed at him um but you know it's really been since 2006 or so you know we've been trying to think of what the next mission should be and Titan is a really unusual place. Uh, it's one of the few places in our solar system with both a thick atmosphere and a solid surface. Um, so there's a lot of physical processes there that are going on that are similar to ones that are happening on Earth, like erosion. And it's the only other place in the solar system with rain, although the rain is liquid methane. And yeah, that's not liquid water, but still, the, the physical processes um, are very similar. When we started to think about how to do that exploration, we wanted to explore both that atmosphere and the surface. And people had come up with various different ideas, like a balloon. Okay, so a balloon could be good, but how do you sample the surface with a balloon? I don't know if you've ever been landing in a hot air balloon. It's a tricky business. I had previously had an idea to send an airplane. But of course, airplanes definitely, there's no runways, so... Very little prospect. Problematic. For, yeah, yeah. A little, very little <laughs> prospect for getting uh, access to the surface. But it was then that we came up with the, this idea around, um, you know, three or four years ago of doing this with a, a giant drone. Uh, when people think of a quadcopter, you think of this little one that you buy your eight-year-old. I, I bought my nine-year-olds, in fact, and they fly around and it's like, you know, fits in your hand and it's pretty small. Ours is like half a ton. It's really big. Uh, it's of a totally different scale. So it's sort of like a giant rover like we have on Mars, but, you know, it achieves mobility using its rotors and its propellers. Yeah. I mean, from what I saw the pictures, it's it's the big block of the body and it's kind of got some sled landers on it. And then basically on each corner, you have a set of two propellers that do the actual lift and the takeoff. Right. And, and it's, it's big. It's about three meters long. Um, it's about two meters high. So it's about as tall as a person. And it's like three meters wide uh, with these giant rotors. I mean, these it's got eight of these rotors and each one of them is almost as big as a, a one in a Cessna or something that you, oh. that you fly. I mean, they're, it's big. Okay, so you said that you, you came up with Dragonfly, you know, four-ish years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's four years that you've dedicated to kind of putting this together. Just so, this proposal, right? Just so, this proposal. So, yeah, we put in a proposal to NASA and it turns out there were 11 other proposals that went to NASA. Um, and so those were evaluated. And so we were very fortunate. Um, out of those 12, two were selected to get further study. And we were one of those two. And I have to say, I was pretty surprised when we got picked because this was our first time. So we were, we, I, I thought we'd really gotten lucky when we got, when we um, won the first round. But then those two got to, as, as a reward for winning, you got to write an even bigger proposal that would go into a competition again, and then NASA would select between those two. So our competitor uh, was a comet sample return mission that would return bits of comet to study back on Earth. So that brings us to June. We knew that NASA was in the final stages of its decision-making process, but uh, they keep it pretty uh, tight-lipped over in NASA. You decided to go on a trip because you, you thought that they were going to sit on this for a little while. I designed, I planned this trip a long time ago. I, we were down in South America for the recent uh, solar eclipse, actually. And so I was down there and I was like, oh, should we cancel the trip? And they were like, no, there's no way they'll decide before J J July 15 or something, you know, but... June 26th is it? when we learned that, there was that they were the going to be an announcement on the 27th. Yeah. So I have to say I was not <laughs> mentally prepared. I thought I had another two or three weeks to like, you know, become ready for whichever eventuality occurred. Um, uh, but thankfully, once the, uh, the announcement occurred, uh, they uh, 
said that Dragonfly had been selected for flight. Um, and that's, it's just such a huge development. Um, it's hard for me to express what a big deal this is. Um, the total uh, mission cost is uh, $850 million is the PI managed cost cap. Uh, and that doesn't include things like the rocket and stuff like that. So this is a really, really large scientific endeavor. And we're um, so excited to have been the ones that were chosen. This is this is really what everyone in our field hopes for. And some people go through their whole career and never get this. Um, so we're really excited. Um, and we've actually been very impressed with the support from the public too. People have really been supportive uh, of our mission concept. Um, and I know lots of people, you know, have, have been very excited that we were selected. So we're really looking forward to, to taking everybody on a journey to Titan. Um, though we'll take a little while. So um, we'll get back to that in okay. a second. But so let's talk about Titan, though. How did you get, you know, way back when, how did you get involved with looking at Titan? We've got so many moons. We've got so many planets just in our solar system. What What is it about Titan that excites you? Well, Titan is a very complex world, um, and that sets it apart, really, from a lot of different places we've found. Um, so if you look at the places with a, both a solid surface and an atmosphere, it's only Venus, Earth, Mars, and Titan. So Titan really is one of the more interesting places um, left. And I got involved mostly because it was Terra Incognita. And uh, when the Cassini spacecraft, which was launched in 1997, arrived in 2004 to the Saturn system, um, all the many of the scientists that were on um, the team, the infrared spectrometer team that I joined, um, they wanted to look at all the other bodies where they knew what questions to ask. But it's really hard to design a proposal to say you're going to look at Titan when you don't know what you're going to find. So there was sort of a, a hole in the expertise on the team there that I jumped into and was able to, you know, interpret our images and try to figure out what was happening on the surface of this world that we'd really never seen before. When Voyager flew by in 1980, the question, we was able to see the atmosphere. We knew what questions to ask about the atmosphere and what um, its density profile was and how much methane is in it and how the clouds are distributed and stuff like that. But um, so we designed this probe uh, to be able to fly down through the atmosphere, fall down really through the atmosphere with a parachute and take measurements as it went. But Titan's a sort of unusual place. It's about the size of our moon. So it has about the same gravity as our moon, about one-seventh the gravity on Earth, so not very high. But it has an atmospheric thickness that's about four times thicker than Earth's uh, in terms of its densities, but very similar overall and made of nitrogen, same as Earth's. So when Huygens fell down, um, its parachute was able, actually able to stop it. It was able to land on the surface without a rocket or anything like that. It was able to take this one picture, and that was so transformative. It really opens up the questions you can ask as if I imagine you were there, right? What, how, would you, how would you interpret this surface? And it's like being in a location on Earth. You can start to interpret what's actually happening at the, at the, at the level of the rocks and the grains that are uh, actually involved. Uh, and that was you know, one of the very few places we've even landed in our solar system. So it was a really exciting moment. So between the, the Huygens probe and the Cassini images, what are some of the stuff that you and your team have personally looked at on Titan and kind of figured out so sure. far? Well, we saw we discovered sand dunes uh, on Titan in 2006. So the ones on Titan are longitudinal dune fields, which have like these huge dunes 100 meters high and hundreds of miles hundreds of kilometers long, okay? They just go on forever. But it turns out there's not sand everywhere. It turns out somehow these things organize themselves into dunes that are a couple kilometers wide, and then they're separated by three or four kilometers, and in between those is a, an interdune region where there's no sand. 
And so I did not realize this, not coming from a geology background, but we've since visited dunes in Namibia and the Arabian Desert, for instance. And yeah, this is absolutely normal for the largest dune fields on Earth. Um, but so I was if, the first... if it's not sand, what what is in... Right? Right? Oh. <laughs> so who knows? Um, you have no idea. <laughs> um, uh, when we visited places on Earth, for instance, in the Namib Desert in Africa, um, in between the dunes are just gravel. Um, so if you dig down below the gravel, there's some sand beneath there. But it's really kind of amazing that these huge, you know, you know, quadrillions of grains of sand all manage to organize themselves such they're all in one place and not a kilometer away. And then three kilometers away, there's another, you know, agglomeration of sand. It's really kind of an amazing thing. Um, but I was the first one to, for instance, look at those sand dunes on Titan and be able to see that there's interdunes that are, have totally different composition than the dunes do. Uh, and on Titan, it's not clear what exactly that surface is made of, but um, that was one of the things we, we, we discovered here at, at uh, University of Idaho. When I know the sand itself is not what maybe I would find in your average sandbox. Sure. Um, so like typical sand on a beach on Earth is uh, SiO2 silica. Uh, made of silicon dioxide. The particle size of the stuff on Titan is um, about two or 300 microns, very similar to what we see on Earth, but the composition is totally different. Um, the composition is organic. So it seems to be made of you know, carbon, complex carbon molecules that make up the, the, the sand grains. All right. And I know you've also looked at a couple of things at the poles. You've actually been looking at some lakes. Yeah. So uh, these lakes and seas of liquid methane um, were really exciting when we first found them. Uh, and they still are, actually. Um, this is the only other place we know of in the entire universe where there's like liquids sitting on the surface. For many years, though, after we discovered them, every time we looked at them, they were totally flat for many years. And we started to get a little worried, like, how can there not be waves? Is this... Are these maybe not what we thought they are? They have a different viscosities that like molasses or something, so they can't form waves. Um, but once northern summer started to pick up, Titan has an, uh, has an axis tilt the same as the Earth. So it has um, seasons like we do. It has seasons. They last a long time. It takes 30 years for Saturn to go around the sun. So the, each season lasts seven years. So it took us a while. But eventually the summer started to pick up. And once that happened, evidently the winds started to pick up. We when We were the first ones to discover waves you know, ocean waves on uh, another planet, and that was discovered here. But don't get too excited. Turns out the height of those waves is expected to be about two centimeters. Yes, they're waves, but don't make don't plan your Titan surfing vacation just yet. Okay, sounds good. So, I mean, you can study all these things from from you know with the help of Cassini data and things like that. But of course, you basically just come up with all these new questions that you need more data for. Well, Cassini taught us what questions to ask, right? Before Cassini, it would have been crazy if you suggested you were going to land on Titan and suck in organic sand grains. Um, people would have laughed you out of the room. Um, so it was really important, actually, that Cassini do that initial reconnaissance um, and initial exploration of what kind of processes are ongoing on Titan. What can we expect to find when we get to the surface? And that's really what enabled us um, to formulate the science questions that we did in order to, um, to propose Dragonfly. So Dragonfly is going to go there. It's going to suck up some sand grains, figure out what's going on there, figure out what's going in, happening in this inner dunes area. Right. and But not, of course, as you said, in one spot, it gets to hop about. Right. So um, we really started thinking about what do we want to explore on Titan. We want to explore these interesting organic grains and how they're, how they're made. And in fact, of course, 
Uh, organic stuff is what you and I are made of. That's what life is made of. It's made of carbon-based molecules. And so when we're looking at Titan, we're looking at the most exciting carbon chemistry anywhere but Earth. And the question is, well, how far did that chemistry get? Did that chemistry start in down that road toward what life might have uh, looked like as it formed on early Earth four billion years ago? We don't know. And so we wanted to be able to explore that. In order to do that, we wanted to be able to both sample the organic grains themselves, but also be able to sample some of the water ice that is on Titan's surface. And that's why we're going to land in the dunes, actually, because that way we can get from the organics in the sand to the water ice, which we see in the interdunes, um, with just a, a little hop, a couple kilometers possibly. Um, but that's uh, our initial science. And the question is, once you get that organics and you mix it with liquid water, so Titan is very cold today and the water ice is basically like rock. But there have been times in the past when it has been liquid. For instance, if there's a, an impact from a meteor, an asteroid, it creates a very large impact melt pool uh, that can be hundreds of meters deep, and we've calculated might last for 10,000 years before it freezes. Uh, and so the question is, once that liquid water is able to mix with the organics from the atmosphere, do you get some sort of self-replicating molecular uh, RNA world um, like might have formed, formed life on Earth? We don't know. Um, the exciting thing about Titan is that that experiment's been going on for 4 billion years, and we just have to get over there and make the right measurements, and we'll be able to hopefully gain insights as to how that transition from organic chemistry to life may have happened on the early Earth. That's just amazing. <laughs> it would be so cool if, I mean, no matter what you find, you'll be able to tell and, us so much about what early Earth looked like and what life may be like on Titan if and, it's and, there. And how this process may have occurred. Um, it would be great to have a time machine, right, to go back four billion years and figure out what was happening here and how life may have really come about. Um, but yeah, we, we, we formulated our, our science such that, you know, we are able to discover if there has been, if that transition was made from, you know, organic chemistry to life, we do have the instrumentation that We'll be able to detect the molecular, the chemical signatures of life. But even if we don't find life there, how far chemi that chemistry has been able to proceed is going to be a critical step. And what pathways it's taken um, in that abiotic environment are going to be really informative to us as we try to figure out how this process may have happened on Earth and how it may happen on other planets around other stars as well. Very cool. Before we sign off, can you just give us kind of the a little bit of breakdown of the timing for Dragonfly in the next what fifteen years? Sure, uh, maybe more than that. Yeah. Uh, for the so the next step is we're going to do another step of of design. Make sure we have our design really um, nailed down, and we're going to take a lot of time to test uh, to test it. Unfortunately, right, we can't build a chamber with one seventh gravity on Earth. But it turns out. What really matters isn't the gravity as so much as the weight of the lander. So if we just take out a bunch of the instruments, the weight can be the same on Earth than it is on Titan. And similarly, we can simulate the atmospheric um, effects in order to be able to really simulate how the dynamics of the vehicle would work and test it on Earth. So we're going to test, we're really going to test it really thoroughly, and that's going to take a long time to the degree that we won't launch until April of 2026. So that's a long time. Uh, and once we launch, we fly through space for eight years, and we don't arrive at Titan until December of 2034. 
Uh, and the mission then, once we once we land, we should go for two and a half years. So uh, and so, we really hope to be able to bring you all um, along on this journey with us uh, as we uh, explore this new world and make amazing measurements uh, and take amazing pictures. Uh, but you're gonna have to wait till uh, 2034. But but by then, it should be great. I'll mark you in my Outlook calendar. There, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason. Thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate you taking the time. Sure. I'm glad everybody's interested. If you want to learn more about Jason and Project Dragonfly, go to uidaho.edu slash dragonfly. I also want to let you know about a few other research projects here at U of I that might interest you. Doctoral student Maria Zubkova found that the amount of area burned across Africa declined by 18.5% between 2002 and 2016. This reduction was likely driven by an increase in plant-available moisture and not solely changes in human behavior, as previous studies have found. She published her study in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. In the world of architecture, a group of current and retired faculty from the College of Art and Architecture contributed to the peer-reviewed encyclopedia, Archipedia, which features the country's most architecturally significant structures. The U of I team helped identify Idaho's most notable structures, and through their 119 entries, which include six U of I buildings, sought to tell the social and cultural history of the state. And U of I made it to the White House when Tara Hudeberg was given the 2019 Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. The award is the highest honor bestowed by the U.S. government to outstanding scientists and engineers who are at the beginning of their careers and show exceptional promise for leadership. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to The Vandal Theory. Come visit us on our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, for more details about the research we talked about today, read our show notes, email me with comments, and most importantly, subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, so pick your favorite and subscribe. Rate and review us, too. We really appreciate your support, and it's an oh-so-important part of getting the word out about the wonderful research being done at U of I. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.